Like when I was a young coach, if you had said, hey, what what skills do you want in your players? I would have been like competitive, hardworking. Like I would have listed all these things. And now as like a coach looking backwards, like I would say, who's my most empathetic player? Who's my most curious player? This is For the Love of the Game, hosted by old school college soccer coaches, Ralph Perez and Ray Reed. Between these two, you're listening to 81 years of coaching college athletes, nearly 900 career wins, five national championships, and approximately 17,546 names in their contact lists. On this podcast, they grab some of those names and talk about what's going on in the soccer world today. Here they are, Ralph and Ray. All right, Ralph, you ready? We're going to talk in a couple minutes to Becky Burley. Let's start with this. Ray, with your retirement from UConn, can you just share with us your college coaching highlights? I I think I was very blessed, you know, at both Southern Connecticut and UConn to be surrounded by a lot of very, very good players. And, you know, I I worked for Bob DeCranian at Southern Connecticut. I played for him. I assisted him. And then I began that coach. I was under his mentorship and, He's one of the best coaches of players and coaches of countries, coaches in the country. And from there, I went to UConn and I followed a legend, Coach Joe Maroney. So although there was some pressure at both places, it was a blessing. You know, both both men had built outstanding programs. As far as highlights, you know, as you get older, you know, I'm, I'm very blessed. I've got a lot of my guys coaching. I think we have 10 guys coaching Division One right now. And then nine more as assistants, 10 head coaches and nine assistants. So I'm, I'm very proud of the coaching tree. I'm very proud of the relationships I've developed with players. Obviously, we were fortunate in both Southern and UConn to win a national championship. You know, uh, but the, the biggest thing for me was the ability to to be around a team every day and try to build something. That's something uh, that I miss at this phase of retirement is the locker room and the camaraderie and being with the players. But I was a very, very blessed man to be able to work at two outstanding institutions both Southern Connecticut and UConn, and two outstanding soccer traditions. During that tenure, Ray, and if you reflect back, have you changed as a coach throughout your career? Yeah, I think I have. You know, uh, I think when I first started, I was really, really structured and really, really difficult on players. And, you know, people would say it was probably difficult still at the end, but I think I was, I think I got easier on the players. I should, I understood them a little better, and I, I tried to meet them halfway. And the people would tell you that I wasn't a structure at the end on the field. I, I gave a lot of freedom. We were fortunate at both places. We had a, we had some creative, special guys, and we allowed them to express themselves. You know, uh, so I think I went from being uber structured to we still had a structure, but more freedom for players. And I think I was always as demanding. But I think in the the back nine of my college career, I knew I had a little better handle when to push and when to pull. For a guy that uh, just getting out or a young lady getting out, if you could just share, what does it take to build a college soccer program? Yeah, you know, I, I think I think Ralph, you and I share this sentiment, and I, I I don't think there's any substitute for work ethic. You know, if you're not going to work hard. And I mean real hard. Uh, it's going to be a tough task. I don't care what level it is, JC, 
uh, NAIA, D3, D2, D1. You got to put the time in. You got to build the foundation. You got to create the culture. You got to be on the road recruiting. You got to be the face of the program, the CEO of the program. I'm lucky. I was at two schools 39 or 40 years. The guys today, they go to a school every three years. I really don't know how you build anything. It takes continuity. It takes commitment, attention to detail. So it's, it's a labor of love. I'll be honest. I said this. I spoke yesterday at my alma mater. I didn't work a day in my life. A lot of stress, winning and losing. You know, players making bad choices off the field and have to deal with that. But I didn't work a day in my life. If I had to do all over again, I'd do the same thing. I'd, I'd go coach at Southern and try to get the UConn job. You got, you got to, you got to love what you're doing. Like you, I mean, look at, look at the way what you've put into the game at the MLS, at the college level, national team level. You, you've been all over the place in 35, 40 years. You've picked your family up and moved. Let's not kid each other. When you left one job to go to the other, or I left to go to another job, you know, went out the assistant at Kentucky basketball. You know, leave one job for another job for eight hundred thousand dollars. It's uh you know, it's a labor of love. And I think you need to be and you, I I think there's no substitute for work ethic in anything you do in life. How about you, Ralph? Talk to me about your path a little bit. Uh collegiately versus national team versus MLS. Well, I think when I started, Ray, it, it was I was a school teacher. So the college thing was a part-time job at Whittier College. And the same happened when I was at Cal State Fullerton. It wasn't until I, I started the program from scratch at Cal State LA. They had dropped, ironically, American football and added men's soccer. And that became really a, a, what I call a, a labor of love, meaning I only had one job, one place to go to to do my work. And that allowed me to build, I thought, a good program within three years. We were, we were relevant. We were good. We were a top 20 team. And it was a hard decision to leave it to go to Santa Clara because I thought I had a team that could win a national title. And then to leave that behind was going to be very difficult. So, I mean, the, the opportunity always comes with, you know, with work. Because when I went to the University of Santa Clara, uh, I started getting involved in coaching education with Mr. Walt Chiswick uh, being asked to be on his staff opportunity to do ODP work outside of college, which allowed me to work with elite players, regional players. And then eventually it led to me working with national players when Bob Gansler asked me to be with the U-20s and Lothar helping out with the Olympic team and led to the full national team. It, it, it's been a journey that, you know, for me, I, you know, it's been fantastic, uh, as you mentioned. I have a passion for basketball as well because I played both sports through high school and college. But clearly, uh, uh, soccer has been a great, great influence uh, to where after I finished coaching the World Cup, there was nothing left. There was no pro league. There was nothing left. So I went back to college coaching at Old Dominion University. And uh, and that was a great place to work. Uh, good for my family, living in Virginia Beach and coaching back on the East Coast. And then... Uh, I'm one of those guys. I'm always looking for the next challenge. And maybe that's, I don't see myself ever as a person to work 40 years at one place, I guess, unless you're at a Indiana or Yukon or Duke, places like that. So for me, going to the pros was exciting because Major League Soccer was starting. To do it in your hometown, a giant stadium uh, was phenomenal. And then 
and later on move on to Los Angeles uh, was great. But then again, you know, you you know, you're in the pro game. You can, you're 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 on tenure ground. You're if you don't win, you're you're, you're fired. And uh, going through that experience uh, makes you a better person, makes you a stronger person. And after two let goes, being asked to be relieved of the coaching duties, um, I went back to college coaching. And I'll tell you this: this go around. The last 15 years at University of Redland has been the best go around simply because the best winning percentage I ever had is kind of like your winning percentage, uh, what you have, uh, where we were winning a, a great amount of our games at University of Redland at the NCAA Division Three level. Like all of us, you know, there's the, something you, that eludes you and the, elude, the eluding is that, you know, when you coach, you're trying to win the final prize and the final prize is the NC2A. So I would tell all young coaches and even coaches have been at it. Not everybody does that. Not everybody ends their season with a win. It's uh, just the nature of the game. Uh, but uh, it surely motivates me, whether it was chasing MLS Cups, trying to get to a World Cup, uh, trying to win a, a World Cup at the uh, World Cup level, whether it be under-20s or the full World Cup, FIFA World Cup, both of them. I can honestly say, hey, had a chance, you know, and how many people can say that in their lifetime? Uh, we finished fourth in the world championships in Saudi Arabia. Still the best finish to this day. Coach Gansler and I, uh, I think, really are proud of that in 1989. And then I think the first time a team gets to the World Cup in 40 years. I know that that was an achievement that I don't think anybody thought could happen uh, except those players and that staff and to get there to Italy in 1990 after 40 years, you always count your blessings, but I always tell the young coaches that have worked with me, it's a pathway. And that pathway is going to take you through some rocky moments. It's going to take you through some hardship. It's going to take you, challenge you, challenge yourself. It's not easy, but that's the same for everybody in the world uh, with all pathways of, of jobs and work. But when you say to me, uh, is this something that I'm passionate about? For sure. You say to me something that I reflect back now and say, I am totally blessed to do it all at all levels of soccer. I realize that I can't do this forever either, but it's been a, a journey that uh, is second to none. All right, let's get to our interview with Becky Burley. Becky was a college athlete herself at Methodist College where she played defender and finished her senior year as the team's goalkeeper. Directly out of college, she became the first head coach of the startup Florida Gators soccer program, where she coached the Gators to their first national championship, defeating defending national champion North Carolina. She retired from the University of Florida for 26 years and temporarily came out of retirement this past spring, to become the interim head coach of the professional NWSL team Orlando Pride. So thank you for joining us. So Beck, you're at the University of Florida for a long time. Through our conversations, I know you had a, a good relationship with current Chicago Bulls head coach Billy Donovan. Yes. Billy won back-to-back Division I men's basketball championships. What was he like as a coach? What do you think made him successful from your interaction and your observations? You know, the best thing about Billy was he was a low-maintenance superstar. And those are hard to come by. Like he was an amazing coach. He was 
you know, somebody who everyone respected in our department, but he wasn't a guy that wouldn't, you know, call you on your birthday or make an effort to reach out if something was going on. I mean, he was just a really great person for overall staff morale. Well, Becky, you know, there's a question that I wanted to ask, and I, I saw a little bit when we looked up your bio, but tell us a little bit how you started playing the game and how you got drawn into this wonderful sport of ours. (laughs) Well, actually, it was sort of by default. I was living in rural Massachusetts where nobody even knew what soccer was. And when I was 10, we moved to Florida and we moved right across the street from a soccer field. And my parents were like, hey, you kids need to meet new kids, like go over there and sign up for that stuff. (laughs) And so um, I started playing soccer. And, you know, with the field being right across the street, it was pretty amazing because my parents didn't care. I could go spend the whole weekend there and, you know, never even come home during the day and they wouldn't be worried about me. So it was just a great opportunity to have some freedom. I had never been in an organized sport a day in my life before I moved to Florida. I had never been on a team full of girls. I mean, when, where we lived, uh, the nearest neighbor was about a mile away. So everything about it just like drew me in like the the pageantry of the game the idea of having a team um all these things and i think i just had good timing you know i moved to florida when i was 10 and that team started that particular year for girls when i was 10 back who influenced you to get into coaching who there's a lot um you know interestingly my coaches before I went to college were all like someone's mom or dad that was volunteering, but I had a female high school coach, which was pretty rare at the time. Um, she had a daughter on our team also, who was a really good player. My club coaches were really invested in us like as people. So like even growing up, you know, I think my club coach bought me some cleats, sent me to soccer camp, all these different things. It wasn't just like come to practice and see you once a week. But I think really the, uh, another big influence on me was when I got to college, my college coach, Joe Pereira, like I never, I never knew someone to do it full time until then. And, and I think that's when I kind of realized like, oh, like you can actually do this as a job. Um, and then of course I had to convince my parents that it was an actual real job, but it was seeing that and realizing that that could actually be a career path that really inspired me. So when you wound up at the university of Florida, you know, during your career, a great career, who influenced you then? You know, boy, that there were so many great coaches here and there still are, but during that era, like we were all pretty young and kind of upcoming people, you know, I came here probably I don't know, maybe three or four months before Billy Donovan came. And it was just so cool to be in this environment with all these high performers who were kind of going through the same thing you were. So I had so many coaches. My athletic director at that time was Jeremy Foley. Jeremy, you know, arguably is the best to ever do it. And he was here forever. And he was a guy who kind of came up through the system too. He started as an intern in the ticket office and made it all the way to an athletic director at Florida. So it was kind of like you just felt like you were growing up together with a group when we were all at Florida during those early days. How about in the college game? Because obviously when we first started, there wasn't a huge pro game. MLS was just starting the women's leagues. What college coaches do you think helped you, uh, soccer coaches, helped you during your time in Florida or influenced you? 
one big one was the the late Clive Charles. Like I was just such, I was so enamored with him um, just as a person and a coach. And I didn't get as much interaction with him as I would have liked to because being on different coasts and, you know, he passed away early. But I always, like, I remember one time, I think I was working ODP and I was running a session and like he commented on my session and I was like, Oh my God, Clive Charles is talking about me. <laughs> um, and then, um, you know, Anson Dorrance, who obviously was a competitor of ours, but he was also somebody who, you know, you could call Anson and ask him if you could come watch their training and he would just open up the door for anyone, which I thought was amazing because so many people try to protect you know, their trade secrets or whatever, but he was not somebody like that at all. Like he really opened the door for that to happen. I worked the Duke soccer camps, I think every year of my time at Barry college. And while I was in college, I feel like I was running the Duke soccer camp at one point. <laughs> and so like all the people that were involved with that, which were many, I wouldn't have gotten the job at Florida if it wasn't for the Duke soccer camp, because that's where I met Ray Leone, whom I took over for at Barry and got me my first start in coaching. Really? Thank you. Well, Becky, um, following your career and, and really seeing how successful you were, how did your coaching style change, though, over the course of your career? Oh, Ralph hitting deep ones. Oh, hey, I want to learn from the best, so I got to them here with me. You know, it's so funny because I was just having this conversation this morning about how – you know, people always ask me, like, do, do you think kids have changed during the time of your coaching? And I'm like, well, of course they've changed. Like the environment has changed. Parenting has changed. Like everything has changed. So why would kids not change? And so, you know, I think, I don't know about you guys, but I'll speak for myself. Like I grew up in an era of like when the coaches told you to do something, you just did it like because they told you to do it and they had authority. And that's totally changing. You know, the, the athletes have a much more of a platform and power and that's been a long time coming and probably much needed but that also dictates that coaching changes because i think if you can only coach with that power over dynamic you really put a ceiling on your ability to manage people when you don't have power it's like you know if i was coaching in the nba i'm not gonna like tell lebron james to run sprints because he didn't play well last night like i've got to find different ways to to, to manage him. And I think that's how college is moving in the sense of like, how do you manage through influence? And I think I didn't know this at the time, but when I look at my career, I got lots of reps at that early because when I started coaching at Barry, I was a 21 year old head coach, had never coached before, had kids older than me on the team. And so I didn't have power in that situation. And so I had to learn to coach through influence, even though I didn't know that's what I was doing. So getting reps at that early, then I come to Florida, I'm 26 at Florida. So a little bit more power, but now I'm dealing with a whole different caliber of player too, in an environment that's super intimidating with lots of eyeballs on it. And so I think luckily for me, I sort of got into these situations early in my career where I had to develop that influence coaching versus power coaching. And I think that probably served me well for the rest of my career. Well, I just, one of the things that, you know, and you touched upon it really about, you know, your lessons that you learn and obviously the challenges, but I guess the question always is, all right, everyone's chasing the ultimate, meaning you end your season, your last game is the championship and you win it. 
how, how do you now reflect on that, that you've left college coaching? Let's say that, because I don't think you're done with coaching. Or anything, <laughs> I am, like Ralph, I am. Influence, <laughs> influencing a lot of people as you speak, but how do you deal with that? That that's a really good question too. You are you're hitting the deep ones today. I tell you, I have this sign that's actually behind me right here, and it says, um, "Who are you becoming as a result of the chase?" And the reason I have that sign, I had it in my office when I was my my soccer office too, because I just think it's a really good reminder of like, yes, there there is certainly like a destination, like you're trying to win a championship every single year, but not only one team does that. And if you can't get fulfillment, unless you're that one team, that's going to make for a pretty miserable career in life. So for me, it's like all those things that are happening to us along the way, the wins, the losses, the great times, the tough times, like how is that forming you? And, you know, who are you becoming as a result of that? And so that sign is just such a great reminder of, yeah, like I want to be excellent. I want to chase that excellence. But I think it's more about like what is happening during that process than whether I actually get there. Becky, you've coached some great ones, to name a few. Abby Wambach, obviously, Heather Mitz, Daniel Fotopoulos. What what made them great? You know, what did they do similar? How are they different? What was your observation of them as players when they were in Gainesville with you? You know, you. I think it's probably a little bit different for each of those players. I was just with Heather this past weekend. She was visiting Gainesville for a 50th anniversary of women's athletics at Florida. And, you know, Heather was really driven. Like, she really knew what she wanted. And and she, she was a little bit of a later bloomer. Like, the pro league was really important to her development because she never even made the national team until after college. But you could just see the competitiveness in her. You could see the the day-to-day work ethic in her. And then you take people like Abby and Danielle, um, both like very different leaders in their own way, but like straight up, like sometimes you can't coach charisma or you can't coach relational skills and you can't coach straight out talent either. I mean, you watch Abby play and she's one of those people who, just had a knack for scoring goals, which I'm not sure any of us coaches can coach into someone. Photop still the leading goal scorer in NCAA history and probably always will be because that's a tough record to break. Same thing. Um, I do think she worked really hard at being a good finisher, but her greatest superpower to me was her, her natural charisma and leadership. She made the, the, best player on our team feel equal to the person who played the least and you know those dynamics matter when it comes to a team sport and I think watching Abby with her evolution as like a leader on the national team on the field and then a leader on the national team as a reserve like how she managed that whole situation was so amazing to watch I remember the goal she scored I think it was one of the biggest goals in U.S. soccer, male-female history, I believe it was the corner kick against Brazil, uh, Rapino. I think Rapino took the corner, and it may have been the semifinal, quarterfinal, semifinal. That's right. That's right. That was a crazy goal. Was it an extra time or near the end? It was late. Yeah, I think it was uh, with time added. It was just an amazing goal. Right. And she got up and had – I mean, this was a big-time goal, a big-time yeah. goal. Without you being a preferential parent, any other any other women that play for you, you want to share anything about 
had that special DNA like Heather and Abby and Danielle? Gosh, there's there's seriously been so many. Um, and I know I would leave people out if I said anybody, but I think what I've noticed is those people who are like intrinsically motivated and those people who have good relational skills, like like when I was a young coach, I would have said, like, if you had said, Hey, what what skills do you want in your players? I would have been like competitive, hardworking, like I would have listed all these things. And now as like a coach looking backwards, like I would say, you know, who's my most empathetic player? Who's my most curious player? And I never would have thought of that early in my career. But like, if you think about it, like if you're empathetic, you probably can relate to anyone on your team, which makes you a good teammate. If you're curious, you're always going to try to get better. And that makes you a great competitor because you're going to hone your craft daily. And so I don't know. It's just like, the older you get, or maybe the more experienced you get, the more you see what really are the important skills that make people great. Well, Miss Becky, you've uh, really shared some good things here, but you said something that I kind of related to because you said, here you are at 21 years of age and you're a head coach. And that's the same for myself, you know, just because I wasn't good enough to be a pro player, you know, I got cut. So I got this chance to coach at Whittier College and hit the ground running there. But you've been very involved with a program that I really love, and I'm on it all the time. And just bought the four books in Kansas City, What Drives Winning with Brett Ledbetter, and you've brought in a lot of people like uh, that are in there that we're talking about. You know, Coach Donovan, Anson, I've seen on there. You name it, you guys have it there. I mean, top-level coaches. I just wonder if you could share with the with the listeners that this whole program that you're really involved with what drives winning and how that all works and how did how did they, how did you get involved I guess too. Well, really interestingly, how it started was um, actually a connection through Billy Donovan. It was through Mark Dagnall, who is now the Oklahoma City Thunder coach, who was on Billy's staff. Billy knew Brett and um, connected me to Brett. And I actually first went to talk to Brett about a footwork system that I thought was had some crossover to soccer. And while I was there, he started talking about how he was teaching these kids. He had an academy for fifth to 12th graders. How he was teaching these kids like kind of character development through showing him coaches, players, and then letting them talk about these clips, these video clips that they would share. And I just thought that was such a modern and unique way of teaching because you're not telling anyone anything. You're just letting them experience what these greats are saying. And then you're asking them how they interact with that. And that really resonated with me. So I brought them down to work with my team. The other coaches at Florida found it fascinating too. And it just grew into this thing where we created a, a coaches collaboration at Florida. And, you know, now Brett works with NBA players, like superstars, um, a bunch of power five teams and athletic directors, coaches, conference commissioners as like a thinking partner that's kind of the beauty of the what drives winning what we're doing like the i'm teaching these classes at florida now that are master's level classes and it's not like we're giving you a test on what you know about coaching we're asking you to interact with what other people do and how does it apply to you what applies to you what doesn't like trying to get people to think deeper about the way that they lead it's just been such an education for me, like an education I couldn't even pay for. Like you mentioned a few of the people that have been on. I mean, there's so many different coaches that have taken part and I got a front row seat to that. So I feel like I got this like 
free education of learning about all these different coaches. And especially when you get out of your sport, I think people are so much more open to share. Um, not everybody's an Anson. <laughs> and so it's like, it's just been eye opening to me to learn so much about the way that we lead as coaches and how important, you know, find building consensus and being a good modeler of the behaviors that you're asking for and all these different parts of coaching that like nobody tells you about, like, that's the crazy part. Like, what are your requirements for being a coach? Well, maybe you played, but that's about it. Like no one is teaching any of this. So I think most coaches go through this process of like learning on the fly, which is valuable, but like having a little bit of knowledge going into it probably provides a better user experience for the people you're coaching. I mean, we took that workshop, our whole university here at Redlands, and then weekly, someone who watched the workshop on the Sunday then had to report to the group. And I, I you know, I, I've heard many guys say they've learned from other sports, which I believe in as well. I'm a big basketball uh, guy that I, I like hearing from different coaches and so forth. So when I started this program and then I saw that, you know, you were there and then I so all the people there that are in other sports, it, it hooked me to the point where every time I've seen Brett speak at anywhere, I'm trying to get to it and on that website all the time to try to pull something out to show my team. It, it's been really fun, like teaching these classes at Florida. Brett and I teach them together. It is so rewarding. So I think, you know, we were talking a little bit before we started this about how I feel like retirement is highly underrated. And I think it's because I have found something that is very fulfilling to me, which I didn't honestly think that I would be able to find something that would be as fulfilling as coaches as coaching, because that was an amazing part of my life. But doing this and helping people, you know, maybe prepare the next generation of coaches that I find equally rewarding. And it's just, it's just a fun place to exist right now. Well, I just want to recommend uh, one guy that you could bring on your show. Uh, Mr. Ray Ree would be a good a good one for coaches in America to be exposed to. Totally. He has a lot to offer the game of soccer. He got a lot to offer coaches in general. Forget soccer. He's bigger <laughs> than soccer, that Ray Reed. <laughs> okay. 1998, back. Let's We're going to talk about ancient history, Ray. Is that what we do? <laughs> no, these are never ancient. These are never ancient. These you take until you get in the pine box, and then they stay when you're gone. 1998, you had Florida Gators to the national championship, and I'm sure it was a little sweeter beating UNC in the final. Tell us something you remember about that team and that season. Uh, well, I'm going to preface that by saying Anson says that I'm the only competitor of his that actually likes him. So, um, And I think that's because we always just had respectful games. Like they were hard fought, but they were respectful. Um, but I will tell you something about that team was that um, that was tough because we were growing so quickly as a program. And when you, you know that when it happens, like people get over recruited, right? So you have kids who start it but then better kids come in and you're having to deal with that. So we're in year four at that point and we're already there. Like people are getting over-recruited. So we had really good kids that were seniors on that team um, that, you know, maybe some of them weren't playing, maybe some of them weren't even dressing for like the national championship games. 
And it, it's not to say there were no problems with that. Like there's always problems with that. But I think that they saw the bigger picture and they were willing to um, put their own egos aside to be able to deal with that. And that's not always the case. You know, that's a hard thing to manage. But that team was just so gritty. We were not afraid to be physical. Um, you know, we played a rather direct style at that time. But let me tell you, like, if you've got Abby Wambach and Daniel Fotopoulos up front, you better get that ball up there as quickly as you can. Um, and that style evolved for us, you know, later in time as the game has evolved. But at that time, that they, they were people that were just willing to – to fight and fight and fight and be a team and, you know, to overcome a dynasty like Anson's, we had our struggles. Like we, we, we literally played them every chance we could to get there. So from year one, we played them every fall, every spring. And probably Anson might regret that because we were so familiar with them at that point that, you know, we had gone from losing nine, nothing to them to, that year during the regular season, losing two to one in overtime, but then beating them in the final. But there was a lot of hard work and tears in between those times because, you know, when you lose nine, nothing, a lot of people are just aren't willing to put themselves out there like that. I think what I most admire about that group was they weren't afraid to be embarrassed. They weren't afraid to put themselves out there and they looked at it as a process of like, hey, like, let's play the best. And let's expose, like figure out where our problems are as quickly as possible instead of protect our egos and, you know, not look too bad. One of the things that I'm curious to ask you is that after spending so much of your life in the, in college soccer, how was that transition to coaching in it and WSL and what was different about it? You know, it was really fun. I, I, I'm kind of regretful that I didn't, really explore the pro option earlier because I think I would have liked it. I, I always said when people would ask me like, are you going to coach pro? I'd be like, not no, but hell no. But then once I got in it, I realized there was still space in the pro game for personal development. There was still space in the pro game for relationships. It didn't have to be as transactional as what I had expected it to be. That to me um, was really intriguing I think the biggest differences are uh, probably like what we've kind of touched on a little bit. You're really not in a position of power. Like no one is coming to the Orlando pride game to watch me coach. They're coming to watch Alex Morgan or Sid LaRue or Allie Krieger, Ashlyn Harris, like Marta. And so if you understand that and you have the humility to deal with that, as well as the ability to, provide value to the players because that's really what they want. Like, what can you provide value? And if you can, they're going to listen to you. And if you can't, they're not. We're going to st steal a, steal a game from Michael Kay, who was on the yes network with the Yankees from called rapid fire. Ask you a question. Quickest answer you can give me. Okay. Love these. Favorite actor or actress. Ooh, that's a hard one. Drew Barrymore. Favorite musician. Sarah Bareilles. Favorite movie? Sound of Music. Besides the national championship, your best moment as a college coach? Every alumni weekend. You're in a foxhole. You got one person with you. Who is it? My wife, Celia Slater. Thank you very much, Becky. Oh, those were a piece of cake, piece of cake. Mm -hmm.
And by the way, very good and very fast and very <laughs> precise. I like it. But that's you, Becky. That's you in, in a nutshell. I, I don't think Ray knows this, but, uh, you know, Becky was uh, asked to come to uh, interview for the head job at Old Dominion when they uh, started the women's program. And she came and obviously was a great candidate. And uh, I, I admire her decision because she said, thank you. I appreciate it, but uh, I'm not ready yet to make that move. And uh, I know that Dr. Uh, Jared come to me, goes, you know, he comes to me, goes, hey, what's the story? You, you tell me this lady's the number one candidate and I offer the job. And, you know, I said, hey, doc, you know, there, there's going to be better jobs coming with Division One soccer. The big majors are going to start starting women's programs. And, and and I have to say that Dr. Jarrett was ahead of his time with ODU women's basketball and so forth. But uh, the job, I just want to say, Becky, the job you did at the University of Florida, phenomenal success, phenomenal. Uh, you know, I, I had the chance to talk to some of your former players and, and how they speak about you. I think that's why we do it. You know, the fact that uh, they... They speak very highly of you as a coach, very highly as a person. And and I, I think the world of, as you know, when we had a chance to really chat at Ray's clinic up in Mohican Sun, that was a nice time. So thanks for being yeah, on the show. I missed that Mohican Sun, Ray. We're trying to get it back. We're talking to Rick about it. Hopefully get it back. How about this unknown fact, Ralph? So a good friend of yours and mine, uh, one of the best high school coaches ever, Rick Jacobs, St. Benedict's Prep, Coach Tab Claudio. Our president nationally coach Greg Berhalter, the Dunn brothers. His wife was Becky's teammate at Methodist. Am I correct? That's right. Right. Teresa, well, it's Teresa Jacobs. What was her maiden name? Teresa Estes. Teresa Estes. I one time talking to Rick, and he's like, Yeah, Teresa's going on this retreat this week with our roommates. All right, <laughs> cool. Who's she going with? She names me a bunch of names. I don't even know people. She goes, Becky Burley. I'm like, Becky Burley. You better bat down the hash. They're gonna have a good time that weekend. <laughs> hey, we call ourselves we call ourselves the husbands, and we meet at least once a year, usually twice a year. And it's man, it, it's a throwback. <laughs> well, she's she's a little younger. You know where Rick met her, right? Rick met her at the Duke soccer camp. Of course, the Duke soccer camp was you know that was the place to be. <laughs> I can relate to that one. <laughs> I just remember the hideaway. The hideaway is a, a famous place at the Duke soccer camp. No, who did you work for? John Rennie or Billy Hampton? Or they were together when you were there? They were together. They were together. But there, I mean, I'm telling you, like, there was so much uh, synergy there. And I will say this. I just want to throw this out, too. Like, you know, I was at Florida all those years where we didn't have a men's program. And, um, you know, fortunately, I started out at Barry where there was a men's program. And it was great. You know, Brett Simon is one of my people that I think helped me tremendously early in my career. But staying connected to guys like you two and you guys having so much respect for the women's game and wanting to be collaborative with the women's game, like that's something I really missed at Florida, not having a men's program. Um, so I've always appreciated how much you all have, um, you know, spoke up for the women's game. Becky, let me give you a little credit here. An idea I stole from you. It's kind of funny. You hopefully we'll keep this on the broadcast. But so Becky tells me, Ralph, I don't know, a while back in in the season, in the season, she on Mondays for the kids that didn't play a lot, they play the men's club team at University of Florida every Monday. And instead of training, the first teams off or they recover, 
kids play, you know, blah, blah, blah. Great idea. I go to my boss, Jeff Hathaway, who I'm very close with. Great guy. I'm like, look, Jeff, we have a cl club team here. Can we, uh, on Wednesdays, maybe six times in the spring, in the fall, play them 230s? You know, we'll probably play a man down, but it'll still be better. My assistant to take the game. We can train them. And we set a train they can play. You know, the club kids will love it. And he's a good guy. Let me think about it. So I go back to him. He's not sure. Well, the trainer. I said, okay, well, how about I pay the trainer out of my camp for the extra work? Well, we go for like five weeks. It's always something. And now I'm getting upset with the guy, and I'm tight with him. I'm like, Jeff, this is for the betterment of the players, and I'll prove him. What's the problem? Give you credit back. He says, Ray, it's a great idea. I can't have 30 programs coming to me asking to do it. <laughs> <laughs> that was a great on your part. I mean, obviously, I'm sure from an athletic standpoint, the men challenged the girls, which was good. For sure. And with and back in the day, when I when I played at Southern, I was the assistant, the head coach, and Coach Maroney had at UConn. They had a, what they called a JV program, but you'd play about 15 games the day after the assistant. It was great, and then they got rid of that. And obviously, I don't care what training you do the day after the players; they want to be trained, but they're pissed off they didn't play the night before. What you did was a great idea, you know. And I I fought like hell for about five weeks of the spring to get it done. He kept shooting me down. How about this? How about that? Referees. I'll pay for the referees. I'll raise the money. Finally, he says, no, I, I don't want anybody coming to me. So football and basketball with this idea. <laughs> and now, you know, it's so commonplace. You look at, especially like women's basketball, probably where right. you see it the most. Uh, but it was a great idea. Do a lot of the women's programs do that? The high level programs do that or now? Well, the challenge is um, you have to put those people on your squad now, like in, not your squad, but in terms of squad lists. And so they have to meet eligibility requirements and all this stuff. And, you know, there's some hesitation, I think, about adding more men to a roster when you're dealing with Title IX. Right. To a woman's roster. Right. 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 Yeah. Becky, thank you very much for being on. Like usual, you're, you're a breath of fresh air, you're creative, you're inventive, and we love having you. And thank you for everything you've done for the game in this country. Well, thank you guys. I think I owe a big debt of gratitude to both of you. Thanks for listening for The Love of the Game. If you like this show, please give us a rating and a review. Share this with all the social medias and tell your friends. This podcast was produced by Earfluence, and I'm Ralph Perez. And I'm Ray Reed, and we'll talk to you again soon on For the Love of the Game.